Hello, my name is Bill and I'm an alcoholic. And it would be an understatement if uh, I didn't tell you that I was nervous. And I've had many home group members uh, tell me tonight that you're just speaking among friends. And um, it doesn't, it does feel like it, but uh, it's a little bit different. But. You know, I was thinking a little bit about tonight, and, and it's a little bit intimidating to be up here speaking from the pulpit. <laughs> and, and I kind of feel like I should say, Aloha, I've been saved, hallelujah. <laughs> because in some ways, that's not too far off. I have been saved from uh, close to near death from alcoholism, and for that I'm truly grateful. A little bit about my, my background and my life. Uh, I was born in the mid-40s into a loving family. I uh, have three older sisters. I was kind of a change of life baby because uh, when I went to kindergarten, a couple of those sisters were in college already. But uh, I was, you know, a precocious kid uh, up until I got to first grade, I guess. Uh, you know, I was one that uh, was always around a lot of adults, and I was the one that could entertain them and do all that kind of stuff. And um, But once I started school, things really changed. Uh, I had struggled with school and, and also felt a lot different. Of, from a, a lot of folks. I grew up in a neighborhood where, um, you know, I, I once asked my family, what is it? And, uh, what? and they said, well, we're, we're upper middle class. And the, the houses, the people that I grew up in, I grew up in the city, which, uh, in the street with some big houses, and none of the mothers worked. They were all stay-at-home moms. And most of the people had help in the house or part-time help. Uh, and I always felt like I didn't really fit in. I always compared myself with other people, uh, whether, you know, what kind of car you drove, or, you know, if you had a live-in maid and, and we didn't have that and that kind of stuff. So, but academically and athletically, I, I, I really sucked at it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I can remember, you know, report cards would come out and my mother would be in tears and telling me I'm just not applying myself hard enough. Or, and I can remember my dad telling me that I threw baseball like a girl and I'm going to teach you how. And every night after dinner, it seemed all summer long, we were out there throwing the baseball back and forth in the backyard. And I went to public school up until sixth grade and then I went to a private school where I had to wear a coat and tie kind of like this. And, and there again, it was always, uh, you know, on the weekends, it was with a private tutor or something like that. I went away to a boarding school or a prep school for high school. And in that, that way, I kind of blossomed. Uh, first of all, you know, I, I, looking back upon it, just to back up a little bit, you know, my first drink uh, was 
a sip of my mother's Harvey Bristol Cream wine. And I loved the feeling of the warmth that came over me when I drank that wine. And then I learned later on that there was a cough medicine that was called Elixir Terpenitic with Coating. And I learned how to fake coughs to just get that feeling. And um, so that, in high school, I, I, I blossomed socially. It was a small um, prep school. And uh, I learned the art of um, coloring vodka to look like a mouthwash. Uh, it was called Lavorce, and it was pink, and we could color it. And I learned how to chill beer in the back of a toilet by keeping flushing and flushing and flushing it till it was cold enough to drink. My first real drunk that I remember was on a class trip. And also, I grew up in New York State where the drinking age at that time was 18. So if you were 16, you could kind of pass, or you could get, we knew where to get stuff. And on this class trip, I went from room to room drinking whatever they had, and I remember vomiting and moving the bed over the vomit, you know, for the maid in the morning. And, uh, but I remember that having a terrible hangover, but on the way home from that class trip, I wanted that feeling again, because I felt like I was somebody. I, I felt like I fit in just having that alcohol on board. I uh, graduated from that high school. I went to three different colleges. The first two, um, after uh, a semester or two, uh, didn't invite me back, mainly for academic reasons. I didn't drink only on the weekends at those schools. I, I went to schools also where the drinking age in that, those states was 21, so it wasn't quite as easy. I graduated from college. I, I, well, my first ever hearing about Alcoholics Anonymous was that um, one day um, one of my professors asked me if I wanted to go to an AA meeting. I thought, this is, this is a hotel accounting class. You know, what are you asking me to go to that for? Um, and obviously I declined. And, um, and I still have a, a mug that uh, from my fraternity and my nickname in my fraternity was Keg. And I was the one that, I had a high tolerance for alcohol. I could drink much more than my fraternity brothers and most anybody else. I was the designated driver many times <laughs> because I was still, you know, sober enough to drive. I, um, I graduated from college. Uh, in the summers, I, I found some place that I really kind of fit in because it wasn't academic. I worked um, in the hotel. I worked in a hotel first as a busboy, then as a waiter, then uh, as a bar back, and I graduated to bartender, which was ideal. Um, I worked as a desk clerk, so I decided that I wanted to go into hotel administration. I went to a college that was unaccredited, that I didn't know anybody that got asked to leave for academics as long as you paid your tuition. And I graduated from that school, and I did get a job in the hotel industry. And it was ideal for an alcoholic, although I didn't really realize I was an alcoholic at the time for a long time. But I was able to drink. I usually pulled the night shift where 
I would be in the evening hours and close the bar and make sure that it was closed up and that kind of thing. So it worked real well. And I got transferred to a hotel to be part of the opening staff as the assistant manager. And that's where I met my wife who was transferred there as our sales director. And one night she invited me up to her room for a, a she had a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker Black, and that proceeded to be many nights in that room, uh, the two of us having Johnny Walker Black. And, we have, and that was probably the only woman that I ever really, truly loved. And we got married, and uh, we lived in a second uh, floor wing of a country club, and I managed the country club. Moved from there to, uh, from New York State to Florida, and I was food and beverage director, probably more on beverage, um, <laughs> of a Sheraton hotel in St. Augustine Beach. And the, eventually, after a few years, we, we had a son, and that was a, an eye-opening experience for me. Because before that, my wife's world revolved around me, and now that didn't happen anymore. I was, I was in the backseat and my son was in the front seat. And um, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, we uh, ended up uh, Marco Island, Florida, and I was general manager of um, Marco Island Country Club. And alcohol was always a part of my life. Uh, and I could drink anytime I wanted and all the time. Uh, but there again, what I was thinking about when I was a little kid was that I was always comparing myself to other people. And I, I always felt like I didn't measure up. A thing for me was I wanted to have a house with a swimming pool because then I thought you'd arrived. Well, we got the house with a swimming pool, but... Uh, you know, the marriage was kind of on the rocks, and um, things weren't going really, really well, and uh, I uh, got drunk, came home one night, told my wife that I was leaving, that I was in another relationship, and I left ten minutes later, and that's something I'm not very proud of. Um, eventually, and I was in that relationship 10 minutes later. That person didn't know that it was going to be a relationship until they <laughs> rang on their doorbell. <laughs> but not too long in that relationship, uh, I was given an ultimatum. You're drinking too much. If you don't quit drinking or cut down, I'm leaving. Well, what does a good alcoholic do? <clears throat> I drank. And so, you know, I uh, was told, well, you know, I'm moving out tomorrow. Uh, so I, I went on a bender. I, I drove to the other side of, the, of Florida uh, and uh, stayed for a few days, came back into that relationship. And drinking was a part of my life from morning to night. And um, I, uh, I was really upset about the breakup of the marriage, actually, 
And I can remember walking around the house and going into my kids' bedrooms and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and just didn't know what to do. One night, um, no different than any other night I was drinking, and I ended up driving myself to a treatment facility. And, you know, it was, I don't know what time of night, but it was not early. I rang the doorbell and they let me in and they accepted me. And I was at that treatment center for about six weeks. And the thing about that place was, uh, it was a plush place. It was on a golf course. We had a swimming pool. There was a fountain in the atrium. Uh, and uh, we had a, we had a little for the we had a little snack bar for the for the patients that we could. They stocked it with Haagen Dazs ice cream. And, <laughs> And I thought that it was fabulous. I wanted to stay there for the rest of my life. And, and uh, but you know, I graduated, we had a big ceremony when I left treatment, and I thought, I'm free now. I'm rid of that person. I, you know, I'm free. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the, AA poster child, and, and I, you know, I was kind of like, I've been saved, or at least I thought. Well, that lasted about five days, and uh, I was lonely. So I went to a beach that, uh, well, one end of it was kind of new, and I, <laughs> I, I, I took a 12-pack a with me, and I was at the beach, and. And then I don't really remember leaving the beach, but um, the next thing I remembered was a, a bump or something, and I had sideswiped a row of cars in old Naples, Florida, which is a pretty um, affluent area, and I think there was a couple of Jaguars, and I don't know what, but anyway, and I also bought myself a puppy in the blackout. <laughs> and, in that, in that blackout, I went back to the treatment center, and here I am, I'm, I'm banged up, I'm bleeding, my knees, and, and, and um, you know, they took me in, and they took my puppy, and the next thing, and, and they didn't let me back in where the rooms were, they just took me in, and the next thing I know, there was the police were there, the EMTs were there, and I was off in an ambulance to the ER, and you know there was a couple policemen outside the door, and I thought, oh, that's really nice. They're concerned about me, you know, that's why I'm getting stitched up. Well, I ended up in jail, and you have to realize I was in jail with these short little jogging shorts, white clogs, and um, a Key West tie-dyed tank top. And here I am in the drunk tank, and I did not feel safe. Well, I, I got bailed out, and the treatment center told me, we're not taking you back. So what I did was, and, but you need long-term treatment. So I did a geographic, I, I, of course, you know, I'm somebody. So I flew first class to the island of Kauai in Hawaii. And I went to a treatment facility 
that was an old wooden building. They picked me up in this rickety old station wagon, and I walked in there. I was the only white person, and I couldn't understand what they were saying because it was mostly all pigeon. Well, I was in there for six months, and I learned a lot of things. I learned some humility, for sure. And I had uh, one of the things that we used to have to do is we had to write a gratitude list every night, and we had to leave it on the kitchen table. Um, and there was a guy named Henry there who was pure Hawaiian and didn't read or write. So I was assigned to him to be his scribe. And Henry and I became very, very close friends. And up until the day he died many years ago, we were close friends. I was friends with his family. And I learned a lot from him about humility and about the Hawaiian way of living and thinking. And it was, it was a, a, a wonderful experience for me. I was in that treatment facility for six months. And they used to take us to meetings every night, but to go to a meeting every night, you had to go one side of the island one on Monday night, the other side of the island on, on uh, Tuesday, then you went to the, where the, the hometown was or where the county seat was on Wednesday, and it was, that's the way it was. And you knew everybody at every meeting. I mean, I, and I met somebody there at an AA meeting, and um, I was getting out of treatment. I didn't know what I was going to do. And he had a buyer for his boat in Australia. And he asked me if I would finance the trip. And as a result of that, I got to sail from Honolulu to Sydney, Australia. Had never been sailing before in my life with a straight man for two and a half months. Uh, some days scared shitless. I mean, some days we were like this for, for a week or so at a time and you had to tie yourself into your bunk so you wouldn't fall out. We were on two hour shifts. As soon as I got to Sydney, Australia, I was out of there. I, I uh, moved into a, a, a bed and breakfast. I attended a lot of AA meetings. I met a lot of really good people, and I met, went to aid meetings that were like in the town and like the Bowery, and they would, it was a homeless shelter, and they would push a cart up and down and, and uh, hand out coffee and cigarettes to, the, to people so they'd stay there. I, as a result of that, I spent a, a month there, then I spent a month in New Zealand going to meetings, and they talked a little bit different than the people did in, in Sydney. Um, went to Fiji, Rarotonga and the Cook Islands. Uh, this was on my way back, not by boat, I flew. <laughs> went to Tahiti for a week and then back to Honolulu in reality. And then I had this bright idea I would go back to that relationship in Florida, which I thought, oh, it's going to be different this time. Well, it lasted maybe a month or six weeks until we had an argument over the color of carpeting that we were gonna put in the um, place. And of course, what, a, what does an alcoholic do but drink over it? So I was out of there again, and I moved into uh, a halfway house. It was an old Victorian house right on the beach. And, you know, I didn't, at that time, you know, I, I went as first class as I could. <laughs> so it was a great experience, and um, I got in another relationship 
And that ended, and so what do you do but drink? I can tell you my story is that I've been in six different treatment facilities, and I've been in countless psych wards that I can't remember, countless numbers of suicide attempts. I was never really had the guts to like shoot myself or anything like that. It was always just take all the pills that I had. Um, and I went back to the treatment facility in Hawaii for another six months. Things were a little bit different then. You know, it was, I was a little bit more ready and willing to listen. And, you know, I started doing the steps. I, but I had what I would call kind of Burger King kind of sobriety where I pick and choose which steps I want to do, you know. And, or I justify, like, oh, a ninth step is that, you know, it's like the amend to the Constitution. It's just that you've changed. <laughs> but, you know, it's too, too difficult to really have to sit there and look at your part. And so I didn't do it the way the big book had. And, and I had, you know, a, but I also gained a lot of humility because I ended up being homeless. Then I lived in a waste station uh, and there was a scales in it and you couldn't stand up all the way down. It didn't have running water. Uh, I had to go to a main building to use the bathroom. There was a spigot on the outside of the house. And uh, I lived there for a while, ended up in another psych ward again, um, lived for a while on my sponsor's floor, um, mattress on the floor in the living room. I got a job, uh, and then I, I moved on up, as the Jeffersons would say. I moved uh, into an abandoned um, gas station. And I had to pay somebody to put a door on it because there was no door. I lived there for three years. And I went to meetings on a regular basis. Uh, I eventually was able to move out of there and uh, move uh, into a, a real dwelling. I mean, that, that, you know, there was a stove, a refrigerator hot and cold running water, which I didn't have at the other two places. Um, and I was doing well. Actually, uh, I got a job, believe it or not, as a case manager in an adult mental health division, uh, Kauai Community Mental Health Center. And I was the case manager there, and I loved it. And also, <laughs> I became one of the facilitators of the dual diagnosis program, which was for people with mental illness and substance use issues. Uh, and I was involved in AA. I still hadn't completed the steps the way that is suggested, but I became a GSR, and then I became a, a DCM or district chairperson. Uh, and I, I, I thrived on, on that type of thing. And eventually, um, 
believe it or not, I became the alternate area chair. And, um, and then 9 uh, 11 happened. And prior to that, because I had to move, when I got, the, uh, I got a promotion, and I had to move to Oahu, where Honolulu is. I can tell you, the people don't do meet the meetings the way I wanted them done. I didn't get a sponsor, so I decided, what the hell, I'm not going to these meetings because I don't like the way they're doing them. And I did that for like probably five years of white-knuckle sobriety is what I refer to it as. And then what happened was uh, there was 9-11, and 9-11 came along, and I got a cheap ticket to Japan for two weeks. I had a Japanese uh, rail pass and I went to Japan and I went, you know, sightseeing many places. I would spend time in Tokyo, spent time in Kyoto, Osaka, and I was in this little island and I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> um, I had to change, change trains in Hiroshima, I remember that. And I was in uh, a restaurant. Nobody spoke English. I don't know how. I picked something off the menu or whatever. And there was a table next to me. Somebody ordered a tall draft beer. I just looked over. No thought about it. I had lost all defense against having a drink. I pointed to that. And that set me off and running. I drank three beers that night. I don't know how many the next night. Uh, flew back and um, they had upgraded me into business class so I was able to drink on the plane. Uh, and I was able to control my drinking once I got back and, and um, was working uh, during the day. But I would stop on my way home, pick up a 12-pack, finish it, and then maybe sometimes have two trap packs so that if I, I had needed more than 12, I'd have more than 12. I was in a relationship that uh, I asked the person, um, you know, do you think I'm an alcoholic? Of course, I never told them about my past at all. None of these people I ever told about my past. <laughs> Why would you do that? I mean, it might spoil a good thing. And um, so they said, no, you know, you're probably a functioning alcoholic. And I was like, ha, that's perfect. That's perfect, you know. That allows me to be able to continue to drink and to live the way I want to live. Nobody was telling me I didn't have, I shouldn't be drinking like it had happened in other relationships or other situations. It wasn't like AA was on my neck because the AA police didn't even know where I was. I mean, they didn't know that I existed in Ever Beach. Um, and, you know, it happened where, you know, once in a while I couldn't remember what happened. But usually, you know, I made sure somebody drove me around if I knew I was going out to eat. And, you know, eating got to be more drinking than eating most of the time. And uh, I did that for 20 years. 
I had 15 years of sobriety and 15 years in the program and many of those 15 years life was pretty good. It wasn't perfect but it was pretty good. But once I picked up life was a lot, lot different. And I uh, retired and moved here mainly because of the cost of living after I retired. And when I moved here, aha, I don't have a job anymore. I don't have any responsibility other than my dog and paying my mortgage. And after all, I deserve to be able to drink and, and do those things that, you know, I envisioned retirement. Not sitting on a golf course, but sitting at home by myself drinking. I had a couple places that I used to go, and I had a couple bar stools that I was a regular at, and people knew that I was a regular there. And then I'd have periods of time where I would say that I was going to quit. I ended up uh, in uh, a place in this area, I, I refer to it as um, holy hell. <laughs> and uh, um, I got out of there uh, and on my way home, filled the prescriptions that they gave me. Uh, stopped and got some beer, went home, and I forgot to tell you, you know, drugs aren't a really big part of my story, because I never drank, smoked Pacalolo until <laughs> I was 55 years old. And if you don't know what Pacalolo is, it means Paca is smoke and crazy is Lolo. Well, I've been in a lot of Lolo places, you know, that I, the insurance paid for, but, um, you know, and then I, I learned to do some, a few other things. So I went home after leaving um, Holy Hell and um, had my, my stash and finished that, you know, just out of, out of the psych ward. Um, and I would have periods of time, and there's some people in this room that have seen me uh, where I thought I was fooling them because they'd come early in the morning in my house to walk my dog and I'd have a cup of coffee there but I'd have a beer in the bookcase right next to me uh, and towards the end it got to I could not go more than two hours without a drink. I was shaking all the time, I uh, wasn't really eating, my, my idea of, of eating for the day was a lean cuisine, one. Um, and it just got to the point where the last six months I was in wake med six times. I was falling down and breaking heirloom furniture. I would fall down and I couldn't get up and I'd sometimes scurry myself to my bed and then I'd sit against the bed until I could get up again, if I could. I had a, a roommate that would help me up sometimes. Many times I'd, I'd come to and, and, I, and I'd be bleeding or 
that kind of thing. And the, it was a living hell. I had two physicians tell me that if I kept on doing, I wasn't going to live more than maybe six to nine months. And I wasn't sure if I really wanted to live or not, because I felt like I had nothing really to live for. Maybe my dog. And I even remember asking somebody, if something happens to me, will you find my dog a good home? And that person's in this room right now. And it got to the point, it was no burning bush or, or aha awakening moment. I thought, okay, I'll try one more time. I don't really know if it's going to work this time. I just really didn't. So I asked somebody else in this room if they'd give me a ride to Triangle Springs. Not knowing if it was going to work or not work, but I was willing to try one more time. And that's all it took. I went to Triangle Springs and I had an awesome roommate who I'm so honored that he came here tonight. Um, and uh, I did everything they told me in Tiger Springs. They told me, well, you know, for the first two days or so, you don't have to go to groups if you don't feel like it. Well, I didn't feel like it, but I went. I went because I was scared not to go. I can remember walking out of the treatment and crying because I was afraid to leave. And I met some wonderful people there, both patients and staff, and I came to There Is a Solution, which was meeting in Holly Springs, and I remember going up there with my walker, and it was meeting in the annex, which is just a wooden building behind the church, and there were a bunch of people outside smoking cigarettes, and somebody said, can I help you up the stairs? sat me down, kind of in the front row, there was like an aisle in between, sat me down there and it was hot as hell in that building, I remember that. <laughs> and, and there was all these people laughing and, and that person got me a cup of coffee and I sat there and Madeline was chairing the meeting and uh, I remember Charles spoke or was called upon and I left there and I had a couple of phone numbers. So I called and asked to ride for the next meeting, which was a Thursday. And it was in the big church then, I mean. And uh, there again, somebody gave me a cup of coffee and I left that meeting with probably 20 men's phone numbers. And I, I, I called, you know, to get to rides, and I hated doing that. I didn't like being dependent upon people. I didn't like being dependent at all. Um, and I was, I was still in partial hospitalization from Triangle Springs. 
And I can remember the therapist there, I don't know why she picked on me, but she always seemed to pick on me. And she told me, you gotta get a sponsor by Friday. So of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a person, I gotta find something perfect, you know, and, uh, but you know, we're not perfect. <laughs> so anyway, it got to the Friday and I thought, okay, I'm gonna call this person. Well, I called him and they were in New Jersey. <laughs> and he said, all right, I'll be your sponsor. He said, you know, it's not a marriage. If it doesn't work out, we'll, we'll meet, we'll separate amicably, but call me every day and don't drink in between calls. And I've still been doing that. I'm doing it, I missed a few days. Uh, and I think that sometimes I'm probably a pain in the butt. I mean, now it's not always calling, it's texting. But that man took me through the big book. I thought, oh, I know this thing, you know? I had sold all my big book and all this stuff that I had in garage sale before I moved here. But it's like, oh, I know this, I know this. And no, we had to start with the preface, the doctor's opinion, and we had to talk about it. I was like, come on, can we move? Can we move? You know, let's start the steps. And I finally said to him, he said, oh, I guess we can, you know, kind of move you along a little bit. Well, it was the best thing that happened to me because I got to digest those steps. I already knew that my life was unmanageable and I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. And my idea, I didn't know what my idea of a higher power was. I didn't grow up in a real religious family. And, and so I, I got this concept, you know, like, well, there's something out there that is keeping these people sober. And I've heard the expression, well, group of drunks, so okay, I could use them. Or, you know, there was a power of, I could see an orderly direction, like good orderly direction, or God. We, uh, the, the sun came up in the east and it set in the west, and then the seasons were seasoned, so there was some good orderly direction. And then I, you know, I, I like visualization kind of stuff, because I'm not a good reader and that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, why don't I go to the spiritual buffet and take a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this and make that my higher power. Something I forgot to tell you that I was hoping to tell you earlier was growing up as that kid, you know, I was the only boy and I had older sisters and I was alone a lot at home. And I had an imaginary friend. And I used to talk to my imaginary friend. I remember talking to my imaginary friend when my dog was uh, hit by a truck and killed. I mean, they were my two best friends, my dog and my imaginary friend. Well, today, I have an imaginary friend, and I call him God. I talk to my imaginary friend every day. I pray every day. And we moved along those steps, you know, and, and we got to the third step, and I can remember thinking, damn, you know, I don't think I can get down on my knees, and I didn't think I could get up. 
And I was looking at these things here and thinking, well, maybe I should pray there, but you wouldn't get me up here. Um, but my sponsor and I, he, we read and we said the third step prayer t- together. Then the fourth step, uh, he had me do it exactly the way it was in the book. You know, okay, this week write down your resentments. And then, okay, next week what part did you play? You know, went step by step by step. And then I knew, game, the fifth one's coming up. And uh, we, we did the fifth step together. And, you know, he wasn't really shocked about anything. Uh, or at least if he was, he didn't let me know that or it didn't appear to be. And we moved pretty rapidly, you know, right through six and seven. And then it came to the eighth step. And it was like, oh no, oh no. And so I was able to make a list, kind of like for Christmas and checking it twice. Uh, <laughs> And I, I was more naughty than nice. And uh, so we got to the ninth step. And I can tell you that I have done what I believe would be my two hardest ninth steps. And that's my ex-wife and my two children. And I found out things of ways that I didn't realize that I had hurt them. I found out things that they knew about me that I didn't know they knew, like, for example, a DUI. And, but I kept coming to meetings every day. I still go to um, many meetings a week, sometimes two, sometimes with the advent of Zoom, Zoom meetings. Uh, 30 days sober, I started going uh, with the H&I person of my home group to take meetings into uh, Triangle Springs and Wakebrook. And those were some things that were really helpful for me to, be, to give back what I could. I took suggestions, whether it was, okay, you know, you, we're going to set up the meeting, and so you can set up the literature because that's something you can do. And little things like that, going to meetings and supporting other members when they speak. I felt for the first time that I'm a part of something and a part of people. And every day I practice the 11th step. My awareness of my higher power is continually to grow and grow and grow. And I forgot to tell you, I do have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. And when the opportunity comes, I'm available to be a sponsor. But it's on God's terms, and God's time, not my time. But I like to reach out to people that I don't see in the meetings. I, uh, I can tell you that I've had a blast in sobriety too. Um, you know, I've done road trips, the Freedom Van, uh, van and, and uh, I've eaten at more Mexican restaurants than I'd care to eat in, and 
I can feel that like the people, although as different as I am and as quirky as I am, they love me, they support me, and I feel loved both by my higher power and I couldn't have done it without Alcoholics Anonymous and the people in this room and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous in the whole area. And all I can say is, looks like you all got laid tonight. <laughs> I feel like getting up here once again, I think this is what you're supposed to do from the pulpit and say, hallelujah, I've been saved. Thanks for letting me share.